You're listening to the Maritime Gardening Podcast, episode 122, brought to you by Vessi Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. Well, folks, today we've got author, teacher, guru, permaculturist, arborist, I guess, YouTuber, all-around nice guy, intellectual, Stefan Sapkowiak, and we're going to talk about shrubs. Uh, Stefan, why don't you just tell the viewers about, I, I discovered Stefan one winter home with the flu, this is before COVID, watching YouTube, and uh, through all of that, I was drawn to this, vi- this uh, documentary of his called uh, The Permaculture Orchard, which is the most inspiring uh, documentary I think I've ever seen. It makes you want to be a gardener. It makes you want to grow fruit trees. It makes you want to meet him and know him. It's just the most inspiring uh, documentary I've ever seen. But anyway, Stefan, tell my viewer a little bit about yourself. We're going to talk about shrubs, but uh, just for the sake of getting people oriented, uh, Stefan, what are you all about? How did Sorry, you, how you're... You were mentioning this, you know. Yeah, and there you so, go. So, yeah, it, it can be. How did be. you I come was... to be that guy? I came to be that guy basically because I, uh, I, I wanted more wildlife in agriculture. That's kind of the roundabout way it came. Right. And so I, we bought a 4,000 tree apple orchard and did it right away from the beginning organically. But I was so green. I thought organic means you just don't, you don't do anything. You don't spray. And that was a big mistake. So I went from 4,000 trees pretty quickly to 2,000 trees and had basically a, a, an awakening to, you know, what organic means. And organic is fantastic. I buy organic food whenever I can, but it doesn't mean there is no treatment. It doesn't mean there isn't any interventions. And I just, thought, you know, in orchards, trees live a long time. Trees, you know, I I just thought orchards should run smoother. They should not need as much interventions. And I had gotten into permaculture and I looked at what Bill Mollison was saying. It made a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm a biologist by training and I just thought, you know, if we approach an orchard as an ecosystem, which we should, which we do for a garden, which we should, you know, we should look at our yard as an ecosystem, all of it as an ecosystem. I realized the monoculture apple orchard, even though it was organic that I had, it did not function as an ecosystem. And so we tore most of it out and we restarted. And that's kind of the journey of what I learned before doing that with the orcharding and also what I learned in replanting and how it worked. and. And I mean, it was, I would never go back to organic monoculture. It, it, to me now, it's, I could say it because I did it, but it doesn't make sense. Just like right. any monoculture, it could be conventional monoculture. It doesn't make sense because at the basis, you're not running an ecosystem. You're trying to prop up something that's totally artificial and it, it just doesn't work. It Why doesn't do- mean you can't have small monocultures. Like I suggest conventional agriculture should go to one strip. Whatever your farm equipment can do one strip, you can have that should be your field and do it as long as you like, but that should be your field width. And then next to that, have a strip of another crop and another crop, at least three crops in interchanged in strips. That would make so much more sense. You would have insects being able to, you know, stay in one strip, not get disturbed when you're working in the other strip and so on. 
Yeah. And so it it's just, I guess it's kind of a biologist's look at farming and seeing the obvious lacks. And that's what I tried to integrate, you know, the, the orchard. That's why we called it the permaculture orchard, because it integrates as many ideas of permaculture as we could. And it makes so much sense now, I, you know, now that I've been in it and done it, it's like, well, of course, <laughs> but I, I always forget a lot of people have no notion of it. Their only idea of an orchard is, well, you have all the same thing, just yes. like, you know, in a garden, you plant a bed of carrots and a bed of carrots is not a problem because next to it, you have a bed of lettuce or something. So a garden is, is not really very rarely will you have problems of monoculture in a garden can we just unpack what because you said monoculture a lot maybe we should just for those that are new to this way of thinking and this language what do you mean when you say monoculture well it's mono is one yes. so you're talking <laughs> one culture or one crop and a lot of times in agriculture it's not just one crop it's one variety or one cultivar yes and many, so it's basically clones. You're putting clones one after another, and that's where the problem arises. You're not allowing a natural diversity. You're not seeding, uh, you know, it's not, most of agriculture nowadays has gone away from seeding a, a mix of varieties. Like, no, you don't do that. You have corn is actually a corn line. They're numbered lines. It's a, you know, it's, it's, highly specialized so that everything happens as close to the same time and i understand that and that's why i integrated one of the biggest concepts that we use in the permaculture orchard that people said wow finally you can have diversity and it works was we had let's say four rows in the monoculture apple orchard there would be four rows of empire and then four rows of spartan and four rows of Cortland. so it's four rows, but I realized there's a logic to that is that everything is simplified. You do the same thing for the four rows at the same time. You harvest it in the same window. And so then we simply took that same idea and we could mix, we could have apples, pears, and plums in the same row as long as they're harvested in a 10 day window. Oh. So that has been a, a huge, really a huge eye opener to a lot of people that you can have larger acres. I mean, you can have acres and it could be diverse, but it can follow that logic of being, especially for harvest, it's all harvested at the same time, which makes so much sense. Like you don't want to walk here for this tree, there for that tree and down there. If you have five trees, that's what you're doing. But if you have rows, you know, rows upon rows of trees, you have to have a certain logic to the whole thing. So that's monoculture as opposed to a polyculture, which is poly many, many cultures or many crops in the same row or in the same field. Now in agriculture, they're doing, um, well, there is a specific name to it, but they're doing cover crop or cocktails. They're calling it uh, cover crop cocktails where they have okay. as many as the most I've heard so far has been 15 species. So you have a mix of 15 cover crop species put in at once. Right. It used to always be, it would be one, maybe two, maybe you'd have peas and oats. That was already a big deal. 
But when you have 15, you start to create an ecosystem. You have, and we we're talking before the show about dandelion. Well, you have dandelion equivalent tap roots that go down and are your temperature determinants and so on. And then you have, you know, some that spread and then you have some that just go high. And that's what, an e that's what a field is. A field should right. be a whole diversity. And the more you have this, because when it comes down to it, whether you're a gardener, a homesteader, or a farmer, what are you farming? You're really farming the sun. And so yes. the most solar capture you can have, the more organic matter is accumulated, the more organic matter is pumped into the soil. And it all makes sense. You don't want areas that are brown in your garden. You want as much green because while it's green, it's growing. While it's green, it's capturing sun. It's like right. money, green is like money in the bank. I mean, it's good for your soil. It's good for you. That's a great way of thinking of it. But you're, you're, you're a solar harvester. <laughs> I never thought about that, but that is what you're doing. You're, you know, and the more you read about it, you're, you're capturing energy from the sun. The plants are doing this thing that you can't do, right? You're completely dependent. The entire, all the life on the planet really is dependent on plants ability to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen and it captures energy into the sun so that things that can't do that eat those things and can keep going. Um, so as a gardener, you're, you're completely connected to that process. So that's, it's a really good way of looking at it. Um, I was thinking about, you know, often I have a vegetable garden in my backyard. I've got beds in the backyard, four by four by eight, four by 10, different configurations, but I've got walking paths and I got beds. And a lot of viewers often ask me about companion planting, companion planting. And like the idea that every single four by eight bed has to have three or four or five different things in it. Uh, and, you know, cause, and the view that if the bed has all one thing in it, that's a monoculture, right? And that is going way off the script. <laughs> you know, like monoculture is an acre of one kind of carrot. And if you have one, the, 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 you know, a particular pest that is, you know, likes that carrot, you're done, right? Um, that is monoculture. But yeah, having like a four by eight bed of carrots next to a four by eight bed of cabbage next to a four by eight bed of spinach, that is polyculture. It's just everything's not all growing together. Um, and there's reasons why you don't necessarily want to do that because things shade each other. And it's kind of like these other considerations you're talking about. It's all about sun. So often people will talk about, I just had, a, I was just reading a viewer comment today. They were talking about planting one thing. I planted this with that. What are they saying? They planted squash with some other thing, carrots or something like that. And of course the carrots, <laughs> I'm saying, well, of course not. The squash are going to outcompete. They're going to just shade the whole damn thing. You know, that's why squash is, that's the great thing about squash. They shade, you know, they, they create their own, they're their own mulch, basically. Um, that's why they're know. called squash. Because they squash everything else that's trying to compete with them. Yes. So they're really good for that sort of thing. So they, they're not good neighbors for anything unless it's above them. Like if you can, you know, people talk about the, the three sisters, corn, squash, and beans. It's like, that'll work if you do it in the right order. And if mm -hmm. you're gardening somewhere where that makes sense, given the planting times, uh, where I live, you can't plant squash till June. Um, and you can't plant beans till June. And you can't... <laughs> <laughs> so 
you know, the, and the corn takes forever to get to height. I mean, basically you can't plant your beans and your squash till your corn's got a decent height on it. Otherwise the corn will get overcome by those other things. So it, it for where I am, it doesn't really work that well. Um, but another, pl another place where they have really good sun and sort of a, a, a good solid growing season, you can get some height out of the corn before these other things start getting planted. That can totally work, especially yeah. somewhere with a lot of heat and a lot of sun where you got to keep the, the sun off the soil and you need all that shade from the from the squash leaves and that sort of thing. Uh, where I am, we, we, we take all the sun we can get. We're desperate for sun, you know? <laughs> you know, to the extent that I've got certain things planted under domes right now just to get some heat, you know, on a, on a iffy, like today, today was a very iffy day. You know, it was overcast. There was a few moments when there was sun. So we're trying to make the most of it. But, uh, anyway, we got you on the show. <laughs> Already we've gone off the script. Um, <laughs> we got this show to talk about uh, shrubs. And I was thinking before we talk about different types of shrubs, because you did a video called, what is it, like the five best shrubs or something like that. Is it the, the title of it? Just yes. what's, what's the name of it? Just so people uh, can search it. My, uh, my top five shrubs in the permaculture orchard. I think. Okay. Uh, but before we talk about that, uh, I remember watching a video of yours prior and it was a great point. And you were talking about the fruit tree and the shrub and the relationship to the direction of the sun, especially in winter. And how, if you have, basically if you're growing fruit trees, it makes a lot of sense to grow shrubs. And we mean like fruit bearing shrubs, you know? Um, so talk a little about that relationship and why the two things, and you see this in natural forests. There's an edge of a forest and there's these big trees and then there's all these sort of, you know, whatever it is, choke cherries or whatever growing on the edge relative to direction of the sun. This doesn't happen on like the north side. It happens, so talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it, the, the kind of the origin of that well, sort of discovery, although if I look at Mollison, he had talked about that as well, but of course, you know, you could read something, but until you actually do it, that's when, you know, I, I say to people all the time that you could have you could have watched the film, you could have watched all all my YouTube videos, but until you do it, you really don't. All you know is what I said, but you don't know it for yourself. Yes, you have to prove things, and so the first rule of permaculture is the first principle is observation, and so I used to because got to put it back. This was twenty almost 30 years ago now, uh, our orchard was monoculture. And actually the first year when we bought, there was still herbicide residue. So you'd have this sand underneath all of the trees because there was just no grass. It was always killed. Uh -huh. And uh, the first year clover came in gradually and it was just became a blanket of clover. Uh, but one of the things I started to see was that if we happened to cut a tree, let's say a tree died, and then it would make uh, an opening kind of, especially for the winter. Now your sun is much lower. So the angle hits a tree and that tree kind of creates shade for the next tree in the yes. row, especially if the rows are kind of north south. So the, the tree to the west shades the next one. And we started to see certain cultivars would suffer from what's called sun scald. And people in the south, funny, they don't get it even though their sun is stronger, 
but we get it because our strongest sun is actually when there's still a remnant of snow on the ground because the sun in March is, is getting up there, you know, December. So you have January, February, it's three months after the shortest day. And if the sun hits the snow and reflects, so the sun the is angle, right. And the sun is already hitting directly hitting the bark and then it reflects off the snow. So you multiply by two or three. That's double sun. <laughs> or, it's, or triple. Or and so that area on this, it's called Southwest injury in our area. So that area of the Southwest, which is the setting sun, gets really hot. And I've done it where I took a, a thermometer and I measured, put it against the tree. Okay. And at like four o'clock, an hour before sunset, when the sun had finished warming up and now it's getting ready to get cooler, it would be 20 degrees, the bark, even though there was snow on the ground, but the bark itself, you could feel it, it was warm, but a thermometer would show it was 20 degrees. Well, three hours later, it would be minus 12, minus 15 Celsius. The tree doesn't go from 20 to minus 15 in, in three hours. Like it doesn't, cool off that quickly because it warms the bark but it warms so what happens is especially the north side of the tree is stays cold all day it's in the shade and there's a big difference between the back and the front and yes you know you've skated and you know whenever you have ice building up it cracks just because of the the differences in temperature let's say yeah so you get the same thing on a tree the hot and the cold, and one expands, the hot side expands, and the cold side contracts. And so you'd get this cracking of the bark. And we'd have trees where the southwest side had no bark for like two feet. All the bark was gone. <clears throat> and so I looked up some old books, and they, you know, people used to paint the trees with lime, and it was a double thing. It would be against certain insects like codling moth but it also helped protect the tree against this Southwest injury. So I thought, they'd okay. Want, they'd make the tree white. Right. They yes, make like a birch, white. like a birch tree. Exactly. Yes. So I thought, all right, well, I don't want to use the lime. I just, I didn't know how to mix it up and so on, but I could just, <laughs> so I, I just got some exterior white latex and I dilute it and I put it in a backpack sprayer and I made a, like a shield that I would put behind the tree and I would just spray the tree up and down a couple times. And that on the, on the Southwest side, that would make it white. I didn't bother with the rest of the sides cause I know that didn't suffer. So I would do that. But to do at that time, we had about 3000 trees left that I did it for a few years. It would take me about four days to paint 3000 trees. Like even though it went fairly quickly, it's still a, a time consuming task that you have to repeat every year. Right. Yes. So it's one of these things that you need to keep track of your time, how much time, because maintenance can kill you. Like growing something, planting it, seeding it, that's the minor part of the job. <laughs> Maintaining it is the big part. And so right. you've got to, you know, I always use the Pareto principle, 80-20. So 80% of your time is spent on 20% of your area identify those 20% of areas and tasks that are eating up all your time. And so I thought, geez, four days a year. I mean, that's still, that's a lot. And it was usually at a, you know, at a time I'd do it in the fall 
So it was already busy enough. And so I just thought there's got to be another way. And as I was painting, you know, you, when you get into a mindless task, you, you, start. you, you start thinking. So I would be going and one tree, I could never paint because it had this red osier dogwood, you know, the yeah, red exactly. dogwood. And it was really thick. And I could never paint it because the dogwood was like right up against the tree and just absolutely covering it. But I looked at that tree and I thought, I never painted it. It is susceptible to cracking, but it never cracked. Yes. And I just kind of, you know, that's always a good place when you see something, take your break there. <laughs> you know, just stop there for 10 minutes. So I just kind of sat down to take a break. And I, I looked at that tree, looked at the others, and I saw some of the ones had suffered. And this one never did. And I was like, how come this one never suffers? Well, because when it was sunny that day, and I could see that the bark was hardly sunny at all because of the branches of the shrub creating shade. Yes, yes. And I thought, wow. What would it be like if I had 3,000 trees with a shrub planted right there? Yes. And even better, if those shrubs were actually fruit-producing shrubs. Yes. So that observation stuck with me. So then when I replanted the orchard, that was one of the objectives, was to get a shrub planted on the southwest of every tree. And we pretty well have. There's a few we missed. I, I noticed there's about four trees that that do get sun scald because the shrub that I put in died out and I hadn't put in another one. Right. So it still can happen, but say, I mean, now I, so it took a little bit of work, probably the same time because we don't plant shrubs. We just stick a cutting. So that's a whole thing in propagating, but we put in thousands of shrubs just by preparing them, you cut them and then, we put a rod in the ground to make the hole, and then we just push the cutting in, dip it. We right. actually soaked them in rooting hormone mm -hmm. uh, in um, willow water, and then we dip them in rooting hormone. And we get right. about 80% take on our cuttings that way, direct, like no planting, no roots, nothing. What's, and, uh, what's willow water? What's that? It's uh, basically you take branches from willow at any yeah. stage, and either you cut them, you can cut it's just the young growth the one year growth yeah. and you want to extract what's right under the bark because there is a hormone called auxin in there and uh -oh. it really stimulates rooting for that's anything. why willows anything exactly wow. and wow. Uh, i did a little video on it the secret recipe for <laughs> for getting your cuttings or something like that and it right. really works well it's based on some work by agriculture canada researchers years ago Huh. And they were able to uh, root cuttings of maple, which, I mean, maple is darn, I mean, it's impossible. It's like rooting apple cuttings, you know, it doesn't happen very easily. But they've tried different concentrations. They tried different amounts of, of uh, how long it's soaked and so on. And so we did. And we, now we just kind of, we're not too fussy about it. We just make up some willow water, have it sitting. And every time now we're harvesting, now it's spring, so we're doing cuttings. We just put them in the bucket, let them get good exposure to the uh, willow water. And then when we're ready, we take them out. We just dip them in an, an extra rooting hormone. So that's like the willow water would probably be good, but willow water plus rooting hormone, it just, if it could increase 10%, your, your success rate, that's, well, for every hundred shrubs, we get 10 more like that's, that's a no brainer. So the willow, I mean, I've got, 
mean, you know, willow, for those that don't know, a willow is, is one of those plants that they tend to grow on the sides of the river and there's a, a, a storm or something like that and a piece of the willow breaks off and it floats down the river and it, it, it touches the shore and it makes a new tree. It's, it's so aggressive, right? And you can, if you have a friend that's got a willow and, um, and you want a willow tree, you take a piece off the willow in the spring, you jam it in the ground and you'll get a willow tree. And there's other trees that, that do this sorts of, of things. Some trees, are like, I remember uh, my first house, we had this uh, tree in the backyard, which I was told was a Russian olive tree. I don't know if it was. Um, it wasn't a willow tree, uh, but I remember it had to be, it grew like crazy. So I had to prune it back a lot. And I would use the little sticks off of it to mark a rose in my garden. And they would all turn into trees, right? <laughs> pull them out. Um, so there's a number of trees like that. But this, this willow water, so you just cut those up in little pieces, almost like a compost tea. Would that be like you, you put that yeah. in a yeah. five gallon bucket for 24 hours and then put your cuttings right. in it? That's, that's... I, it depends. I use two ways. Either if they're really quite small, I'll put them in a blender and just blender. run the blender for 30 seconds. Oh. All you want to do is basically hit scarify or hit the bark. Yeah. And so yeah. blender does it really fast. You end up with this kind of greenish water uh. and, and that works really well. Or the other way, I just take, if I have a bunch of them, I'll just take a hammer and I tap them. You just want to break up that bark. Smash and it up. Super, really simple, very okay. effective technique. So, I mean, at this time, let's say it's springtime and you're pruning, make up a batch of willow water as you're pruning any good cutting like the this year's growth of cutting i i use a kind of a pencil as my indicator so i want something the size of a pencil and about that thick anything smaller i don't really bother with but if it's that big it's a cutting make sure you're you're at the end this part here that's where you want your buds to be and i usually as a rule i cut the top flat just to know that's the top and I cut the bottom at a 45 degree oh, angle. That's, a that's good all there is to it. And then as you're doing your pruning, you gather up a bunch of cuttings, stick them in your willow water. Even if you forget them there for a week, doesn't matter. Take them out and then line them out somewhere in a, you have garden beds. So have one bed just for cuttings. And I mean, one four by eight bed, four by eight, I had a eight, by eight greenhouse, we used to do 2000 cuttings at a go. Wow. wow. So a four by eight bed figure, you're good for between 500 and a thousand cuttings. <laughs> that's amazing. I never that's knew a about lot that. Of, that's a yeah. lot of plants. So you were using this to get the, so you didn't have to buy uh, 3000 shrubs at the garden center exactly. for $35 each. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I bought over the years, I may have bought 15 shrubs wow yeah, yeah and i've i've got thousands because <laughs> you just multiply them that way so that basically was it it did two things it solved the need to paint so i saved those four days a year secondly i got a crop so yes. those shrubs they're shrubs but because they were placed in the right place they did one job and they gave me a, a harvest which that to me, I mean, permaculture, one of the Molossinian rules is every element should perform three functions. So if you think that way and you say, well, I want to plant this shrub, what is it going to do? Well, it's shading the bark. There's one function. I mean, that's the first reason I planted it. Secondly, it'll provide a crop. Thirdly, well, it flowers and it's great for beneficial insects. 
That's true. And because I use a whole range and, you know, we can talk about the different shrubs to use, but that range gives me a biodiversity right there. And yes. it helps me build a sequence. I always build a sequence of flowering plants. I try to have, actually, I've got flowering going on now with willows. Willows are actually starting to bloom. And it will end usually about the end of October with some of the asters. And I right. want to have something flowering every week of that season. Uh, if you reach that, I guarantee you, you will never be at a lack of, especially your beneficial insects, mostly your wasps and your beneficial pollinating bees. But you'll have lots of beetles and so on also. So you will have, because think of it, most insects need nectar. That's their fuel to run. And whatever job they're doing, if they can easily just, oh, there's a flower right here. Oh, there's a flower right there. Every week it's changing where, but it's always within their reach. Yeah. You're going to have so many insects. I mean, we used to have hives. I don't want to have beehives anymore. I loved having bees. I loved having honey, but we don't need them. They were a problem because they were creating too much of a pollination, too much fruit set. And so since we've gotten rid of them, we still have some overpollination, but this is with zero honeybees. We do not need honeybees. Honeybees are non-native. It's, it's actually a problem. Uh, and it should be viewed as an indicator. If you're relying, like Nova Scotia, for example, uh, relies on honeybees to pollinate the blueberry crops, we should wake up and say, wait a minute, why do we need bees? Well, we need it because we're making what? Blueberry fields into big monoculture plots. We, we burn them so that we get rid of everything else. And so we have very few native bees working those areas. Yes, yes. You know, if you made your blueberry field 50 feet wide and, and just had a ditch with a range of different crops. Just a wild, crazy, yeah. Oh, just wait, a, just even let a... it go wild every <laughs> yes. 50 feet. You yes. would not need honeybees. There would be oh. so many plants in that ditch. And what are you losing? You know how much honeybees cost to rent this? Like now, the last I found out, they were close to uh, between $150 and $200 a hive, depending where you are. That's crazy. That's just bonkers <laughs> when you need about three hives per acre for, for, for many crops, two to I... three. So... <clears throat> That makes, yeah. I, I did a video once called, I don't need pollinators. And actually everything you're saying is in line with the video. So it was, a lot of people were really ticked off with it because they're like, how, you know, how could you, you know, like, you know, bees are so important and blah, 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 blah. But the point was exactly what you're saying. Uh, number one, like I've got so many things growing in my garden. There's always something flowering all the time. And then my garden is surrounded by basically weeds everywhere a thousand weeds around you know like there's like a an area between my garden and the forest which isn't forest but it's just weeds a thousand kinds of weeds and you can go out there at certain times of the year and it's literally humming there's so right. much stuff going on and then it's surrounded by a forest which every tree makes flowers of some kind at some point in time and so there's just, just there's bees there's a and there isn't just bees like there's these little there's like flies, there's like, there's all kinds of things and there's ants, there's just all kinds of things doing pollination. Um, and that was the, 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 the gist of the video is that 
if your garden is somewhere where the, you've got these wild systems next to it, um, the diversity of the wild system and the different, like right now, uh, what is it? The, uh, you know, certain things in bloom. Um, I was just out for a walk with my daughter today and the colt's foot, you know, the, I don't know if you have those where you are in Quebec, but uh, it's a uh, colt, the colt's foot is a invasive weed. So at the height of the summer, it has these big green leaves that look like rhubarb, but they're not rhubarb, but the colt's foot's really weird. It grows foliage all summer long, and then it puts out its flower first thing in the spring. Is it so, yellow flowering? Is that... Yeah, it looks like a dandelion. Okay. Yes, we um, do have. Yeah. If you take them and scrunch them up, they have a very medicine-y smell, and there's things you can, I think you can smoke it or something like that. There's things you can do with it, right? Um, so the flower comes out first, and it looks just like a dandelion, but it isn't. And then after the flower goes to fluff and turns white, and all that, then it puts out its foliage. So it's a backwards sort of plant. Um, but the bees are at those right now. No, I mean, you don't want Colt's foot in your garden because <laughs> it's incredibly aggressive. Um, but the point is that if your garden is near, like you said, just a ditch <laughs> that you're not controlling, you're just letting it do what it do sort of thing. You're going to have all kinds of stuff happening in there. And there's going to be all kinds of reasons for a, a, a wide range of pollinators to just be around. And when they see your pretty blue flower, your your zucchini, or you know whatever, when they see the color of your the thing that you need pollinated, they're going to go, "Ooh, what's that over there? I got to get me some of that." You know, um, so it just it works itself out. So that was because when you read a lot of these articles online, they say, "Oh, you need this thing and plant uh, this plant. It, it attracts pollinators." It's like like what's one of the ones, uh, lemon balm or something like that, or bee bee balm. That's what it is. Bee plant bee balm to attract I don't need that. <laughs> like my garden's full of flowers and there's flowers everywhere. You know, I don't even understand. It's possible that in a really urban setting, I suppose, yeah. where it's just sort of like stripped of life and, and so on and so forth. Maybe you need something colorful to, to, to draw them in. Um, but I don't even know about that because I had no. a guy, I had a guy on my podcast once uh, who makes uh, these particular, what are called top, top something, um, it's a particular kind of beehive that are really easy to make. Top bar hives. Top bar, top bar, exactly. I, I knew you'd know what it's called. Um, so he was talking about people using them in urban settings. They put them on the roof of their house. And uh, there's all kinds of flowers because there's so many ornamental office right. buildings. They'll have like rows of roses and all this sort of stuff. So there's, there's all these flowers and no place for bees to be. Uh, so, you know, he said like in an urban setting, there, there's an, you know, it's very easy to make honey in an urban setting because there's so many flowers because oh, right. everybody's trying to make everything pretty. Um, so I, I never even thought about that. So the, the other thing here in Quebec, we're finding, uh, the bees are doing, are do better in the city than they do in the countryside as well. One, as you say, people have gardens, so there's a, a range, it's a whole different range. So they're flowering sequence is pushed really extends throughout the whole season oh, but, yeah, yeah. but the other thing is uh, we have a pretty strict restrictions on how much you could spray in the city like you can't spray for dandelion and so on and so because of that no or very low spray the bees really do better in the in the farm areas i mean there is quite a bit of sprays going on uh, even if it's even or just even treated seeds 
And so that has really knocked bees uh, in many areas. I mean, a lot of beekeepers keep their bees basically near woods all the time so that the bees can forage in the forest, but they're not relying on the fields as much. Uh, so in the city, they tend to do better now uh, than in the countryside. It's safer. It's a safe space. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of other things, you know, cars and so on, but still, it's, it, bees can do pretty well in that case. That makes sense. Uh, I brought you on the show to talk about shrubs, and we haven't even talked about one type of shrub yet. So uh, let's talk about, you, you had a video called Top 5 Shrubs. I'm not, not sure what criteria you used to make decisions about these, but I'm sure, so we're talking about fruit-bearing shrubs that sort of pair up really well with, with uh, fruit trees. So give us some, some suggestions, what you think uh, are good options. Well, I, I have to watch the video again because I'd forgotten what <laughs> it was that I had put down. But like any list, it, it was based on my preference. Based on your preference. So yeah. It was based on what I see in the permaculture orchard works well. So I had things, I think the fifth one was uh, black currant. Okay. And then there would yeah, be I remember that, yeah. red currant. And a third one, I think, was hascap. And hascap, no, was hascap in there? Should have been Has, in there. I think hascap was in there, yeah. yeah. And then, oddly enough, I had rhubarb. <laughs> and that's where I explained that when I talk about a shrub, I really talk about a volume. A thing that's yay high and this volume, <laughs> the space, you know, yes, yes. I said anything that's a meter high and at least a meter in spread, that's the volume of many shrubs. And so a rhubarb that goes two meters wide and is a meter high, I mean, hey, that, that's taking up the space of a shrub. So, and because rhubarb does so well with fruit trees, I mean, put it on the south side of your fruit tree and it's, it's wonderful. Plus you get a fantastic crop that you can actually cook together, which is an, a neat combination. If you can have your, you know, you're harvesting, let's say your, your tree, let's say a, a plum tree or a cherry tree. Well, while you're harvesting that, you still can harvest your rhubarb. Yes. And the, the, the number one for me was gooseberries. Mm. And one of the big reasons is gooseberries need shade. They are a woodland species. And if you grow them in full sun, they actually burn. The leaves will yellow and they'll brown out and, and they get sunburned. They don't tolerate full sun. So you have to have them in a partial shade. And mm. what better than if you have a fruit tree, you know, put two different gooseberries if you want. They can be spiny, yes, but boy, most people haven't really tasted gooseberries. And there are some fantastic cultivars out there mm. uh, that really make it, amazing i mean I, I love gooseberries i grew up with gooseberries my parents were from europe and in europe things like black currant and gooseberry that's that's standard fare like i know right away when people are european because they'll come back with here they came back with two kilos of black currant like nobody from here will know what to do with two kilos of black currant but europeans absolutely know it's like black currant you know yes. They're there at when we open at 10, they're there a quarter to 10 waiting to come in because we have black currant today. So <laughs> that's Europeans. They know what it's about. And gooseberry is one of them too. And I never get enough of them. Like we have, I don't know, at least 500 gooseberry plants going, but 
one of the things I've noticed is the chipmunks really hit them hard. Oh, nothing okay. touches black current and nothing really touches red current. But gooseberries, the chipmunks, they'll eat everything around so that they can get at the seeds. They love the seeds. The seed? Yeah. Wow. Do you find, um, this is a bit slightly off topic, but I have found, I have the odd year where the chipmunk population goes insane. Um, and it's, it's bad. Like it's, they're not good for the garden at that. I mean, I can't remember if it was two or three years ago, I had a chipmunk pop, they were everywhere. And I would have whole crops disappear overnight. And I, I didn't see them eating it. But I mean, the difference between this year and last year was that there was chipmunks everywhere. And so I just basically waged a war with the chipmunks and the chipmunks lost. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't make video about it, but uh, chipmunks, uh, yeah, rat traps work really well with chipmunks. <laughs> I mean, I just, I couldn't think of another way to deal with, they were just, cause they, you can't keep them out. There's no fence that'll keep them out. They're everywhere. But I, I always have them around and there's like, you know, you go out and they're, they're the cutest little thing in the world and you see a couple of them. And then there was just one year where they were everywhere, all over the place. They were using the mole tunnels. You know, they were coming up out of the place. I could see them everywhere, like almost like a tenfold increase in population. Oh, yeah. Have you had that happen in your orchard? Oh yeah, we, we, we've gone through it at two times that I can remember, like two cycles, because they are cyclical, like most of these. Like rodents, the rabbit. <laughs> yeah, they go through cycles. <clears throat> the, the one time I can remember, I kind of use the number of animals that we see at a time. Like I know if, I, if I'm mowing, and I see just what I see, four voles running. Yes. I know we're in a peak vole year. <clears throat> like there's voles just everywhere. That's my, that's my metric. Because you for, see them. <laughs> I, you can, I mean, when you see four, that's just what you see. So you know that there's a lot more than that. You normally don't see them, but you know they're there. Right. right? But if and the you same see with them. Chipmunks. <laughs> when I see, when, when I can look, and I can count four chipmunks running around at one time. Yeah. I know we're in a peak chipmunk period. I mean, yeah. last year was one and we had it about maybe 10 years ago. We had, or eight years ago or so. And then that year we had a fox move in and there was a fox then in the orchard. Ah. And boy, those, I think those fox lived on chipmunks. <laughs> because that was handy. Yeah. from the year before, to the fall of that year or midsummer, like when they eventually they take their pups and they just head off to another place in the middle of the summer. Yes. But boy, they cleaned up like it would be, you'd look around and, oh, I, there was a chipmunk there today. Right. Like it got to be that low that it was kind of neat to see a chipmunk again. Right. But right, that's right. what they'll do. They'll, they'll drop, like they could raise a whole litter of pups. And they probably each eat one chipmunk a day or two. Yes. So it takes a lot of chipmunks. But they were, as you said, they were just everywhere. And last year we had a big uh, hazelnut year. Yeah. And I think this year, because they, they stored up a few hundred pounds of hazelnuts. And so this year, I suspect they'll have passed the winter really well because they yes. were doing well on all that store of hazelnuts. So we might have a, a really big year this year of uh, chipmunks. So what happens is it makes it makes a situation. If I 
talked about, you know, the orchard being an ecosystem. And it's normal to have ups and downs of populations. Yes. But when there is an up, if it's going up and you basically take the top off, it's not quite as appealing for a predator. But if you let the top come up, a predator can't pass it up. It's like, I got to use this place. It's, it's yes. so easy. Like we're going to be, we go out and in five minutes we feed the whole family and then we got half a day to just frolic. I mean, yeah, which yeah. parents wouldn't like that? You know, <laughs> you can frolic for half the day because the kids are fed and then in the afternoon go out again and feed them in 10 minutes. Yes. So it's that kind of situation and the predators then will knock because they'll always take what's most abundant and easy to catch. Yeah. And so that's just the way it works. It works in the insect world. It works in the, you know, the rodent world. I think that's the problem. See, my garden's all fenced off, right? Because okay. if it wasn't fenced off, there wouldn't be a garden. Like it's just, you know, the porcupine, the deer and the rabbits and everything would just, there's no balance that would work out, in my opinion, in that scenario. Um, so uh, what I used to have in the garden in abundance was garter snakes. Okay. Um, like I would go every time I was in the garden, if it was this warm, sunny day, I, I'd get the, the, the crap scared out of me because there'd be like I'd be picking beans and ah, there'd be some snake in there. Right. And then 2015, we had a bizarre winter of snow where we had like, you know, end of March, we had like four feet of snow on the ground and the ground was frozen. And I had still had frost in my garden into June. Yeah, it was insane, right? Like there was ice in the ground in, in the beginning of June. End of May, beginning of June, there was still ice in the ground in places, right? Um, in the shadier places, right? It was just an incredible, like right now everything's thawed and it's first week of, second week of April. Um, and that's relatively normal. But that year, the whole thing was ice uh, in April, in May, nothing, you know, and it just set the whole season off. And I didn't see one snake that year. And I really haven't seen snakes in my gardens since. Not in that abundance. I had grass snakes and garter snakes and big garter snakes. And I think there must have been like, you know, garter snakes all, they make this, this big mating sex, ball and sex done, <laughs> sex den sort of thing. Mating ball, yeah. I think a whole bunch of them just got wiped yeah. out. You know, it was a bad, maybe they couldn't get up when they normally get no, up. No, what know? happens is it, the winter was, Basically, they should be poking out now and they can start going out. And it does, I mean, their fat reserves drop all winter and they have to eventually get out to eat. Yeah. And what happened was it was just one month too long of winter and they couldn't eat. So they get that a point that they, they starve in the burrows, in the dens. Yeah. And, and they can't make it. So I think that it's like, in my garden, the predators, like predatory birds, but not, not a lot of them come around. Even though around, I see them, eagles and ospreys and stuff like that, but they don't tend to, I think it's, it's too scary. It's too close to a house. They don't want anything to do with it. You know what Maybe, you could try, Greg? You could try, how high is your fence? It's about six feet high with barbed okay. wire at the top. Okay. Uh, if yeah. you leaned a couple of posts, let's say your fence is here, lean a post or a tree trunk on it here and another one on this side fox are smart enough if the you know if the post is is enough for a fox to walk he could walk up and down raccoons are already doing it because that won't keep out a fence won't keep out a raccoon uh, but it'll allow some of your predators to come in 
deer won't cross over it. No, they won't. And probably, well, probably maybe porcupine would. Porcupine uh, are, are the worst. They're yeah. the most destructive. They're not afraid of anything. <laughs> like, the, I mean, the rab rabbits are destructive. They'll get in the garden and they'll do a lot because when you've got like one inch high carrots or one inch high lettuce, I mean, so if you've got, you know, an entire garden of those, that's one night's meal because they're an inch high, right? And the rabbit thinks this is the greatest food he's ever, because he's eating dandelions and lettuce tastes better than dandelions, right? Um, so rabbits are a problem, but the por at least the rabbit is afraid of being killed. Yeah. The porcupine isn't afraid. I had a porcupine, this is before I had a fence and I had an entire garden of, of strawberries. So I mean like three feet wide by like 30 feet long. And I came up one morning and half of them were gone. And then I came Plants up- Plants or just the strawberries? The whole thing, right down <laughs> to the ground. And that night I set up a trail camera and the, the next morning I went out, the rest of them were gone. I saw one porcupine eat all of them, ate the, there weren't even berries. There, there weren't even, there might've been flowers because it was early, like May or something like that, right? They're June bearers. They just ate the greens, ate the whole thing. Oh, I was so angry. Um, so <laughs> the porcupine, that's the problem with them there. So I'd be afraid, but I think yeah. possibly, you know, if I used, if I used, uh, Something if I put it on a part of the garden where I mean it would have to be the small fox are very smart. Mm -hmm. Um, so there is that. If I put it on a part of the garden where there isn't something good to eat, like I I I've got grapes that are against my fence. And the fence has barbed wire at the top, which I think is a deterrent for porcupines. But I noticed this past year that a port there was porcupine poop inside the fence at the base of the of the of the grapes um, and there was a spot where the grapes had it wrapped around the barbed wire so it gave the porcupine a place to go over safely right um, so but if i yeah. put if i put a walking pole like you suggest in a different part of the garden where there's nothing good to eat anywhere near there you know and it was a, a dead tree not like a nice smelly right. pine, something a porcupine might be drawn to. Although in the summer, they're really not bark eaters. In the winter, they're voracious bark eaters. Maybe I could get, that would be an interesting, especially if I put something on it, like, you know, a little squirrel guts or something. <laughs> something to, I don't know, but just something to give the, 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 the fox or even a mink. We've got mink around here. We've got you yeah. know weasels and stuff like that. Mink or... will go through your fence, though. I, yeah, I don't. That's true. Mink would go through, but it's, I would put it. Way. I would put wherever is the closest part of the fence to the house. Put it there because really? the fox. Oh yeah, the fox. We think you know they'll stand the. Yeah, they. It's just they're out when we're not. Like they're out at four in the morning in the summer. They're out, and so. There, nobody's moving around. Everything's quiet. They wouldn't be concerned at all about coming really close to the house. So they're right. active when we're not, or when, you know, evening, the same thing. It's, it's dark. We come in. And so that's when they come out. Uh, anyway, you have the trail cam. It would be interesting. Or even just try two, two or three spots yes. uh, and, and be able to monitor where 
that would make a neat video actually that would you know? make a really neat video what's what's going to come in yeah you know uh if a porcupine comes in it's over uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah no that's not because i would i would love for something like that to show i know i've got like a one of the neighborhood cats i mean there's a couple of people here that let their cats out they shouldn't because it's wild here there's things that eat cats you know, every every week someone's on yeah. facebook saying has anybody seen my cat it's like your cat is food yeah. um but anyway this one cat there's a white cat that lives down the road and that cat must be tough as nails because it's it's never been killed by nothing. It patrols our yard. It literally patrols our yard. Uh, this morning, I was working from home and I looked out the window at around uh, 8.30 in the morning and there was a, a rabbit right in my backyard. And uh, I said, you better watch out because I know around a half an hour from now, the white cat's going to be and literally half an hour. Like the, the rabbit went away and half an hour later, the cat came along and it stopped where the rabbit had been. And it was like, and it went in the woods. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Right. But <laughs> so I, I've, I wouldn't mind having that cat in my garden, having to look around. Well, um, if the uh, rabbit's coming in, you may already have a hole big enough for the fox. Because a fox would just, would, would just dig. I don't know how well it is at the bottom, your fence, but a fox would certainly dig under. We have dig. We have a deer-proof fence around the whole uh, perimeter of the farm, and we have. If a cat comes in, it's not long that that hole will be enlarged, and then the fox could come in, and the raccoons wow. come in, and the skunk. They all come in. We just don't want deer coming in. Actually, that was that was my uh, yesterday. I put out a video. I said, uh, "Plant this before you plant your fruit trees," and I've said that for a long time. You know, people are, "Oh, I'm going to plant these trees," and are you in deer country? Because <laughs> if you're in deer country and you know you're putting in your young fruit trees, boy, you think they like lettuce. Wait till they see some fruit tree leaves coming out. And so, yeah, you really want to have something that will work against deer. Do you have and, any uh, problem with bears? So, I mean, I'll, no. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. This year, we got black bears back here, right? And uh, I, my tree was doing. I got one tree that's mature, and the other trees are youngish. And one tree died. I had a tree blow over and break. Um, the roots, basically half the roots tore off. And I tipped it back up, but it was wrecked. It just didn't, you know, just did not, you know. Yeah, it blew over. And, you know, like the tree has the roots that go out like this. Two, two of them on one side were just broken right off. And it took a whole bunch of the bark and the whole thing went down. And I put it back up, but it just got diseased and compromised. And some of the bark, I don't know, some sort of, Something got added, a rodent or something like that. It was wrecked. And it was a nice big northern spy. Um, anyway, uh, my one good tree had beautiful apples and they were growing good. And then we had one night, uh, the entire fence was bent down and some big black bear went right over it. There was black bear hair and the barbed wire and all but one of the apples were gone in one night. Uh, and I don't know how to keep that thing out. I mean, how do you stop? A I mean, I just need more apple trees, I guess. Um, so that, but how do you, I mean, how do you? It, it's very hard because when a bear smells up and a bear is, it's a sense of smell. Yes. And when apples are ripe, the, actually there's a, you have, you have what, five minutes for a story? Yeah, sure, yeah. There's a great video called, I have it here. 
Hold on. Yeah, it's uh, the origins of the apple. Okay. Fantastic, fantastic film about it's it really it's like what and it's about uh, an area of kazakhstan that uh, a researcher that time it was russia russia had was soviet in, union right the soviet yeah. union was yes. in kazakhstan and this uh, dr jungalev was a researcher and there were native apple forests you know you think apples well here it the forest was apple trees that was the major you know there was apple then there was some pear and then there was some chestnut and, but the dominant species was apple and so anyway i'm not going to break the story for you because it kind of weaves the whole story in it but long story short how uh, they discovered in this forest that it was dominated by apples that were big sweet and disease-free. That sounds like uh, something it, out of paradise. mythology. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. And you think, yes. how can this natural wild forest be dominated by these apple trees? And so this uh, researcher started to look into, you know, how come these trees, they're, they're resistant to fire blight, they're resistant to scab, you know, fantastic trees. In fact, researchers went and took some of those seeds and they brought them back and in one generation of crossbreeding they said they increased the you know they did the work of 50 years in one crossbreeding because the genetics of these trees were so superior anyway how did those trees develop you're talking about a bear well the russian brown bear that's native to that area the bears would come down out of the mountains in the fall time and would absolutely gorge on these apples. And it wasn't long that the bears, you know, there's only so much apple they could eat in a day. So yes. the bears would go around and they'd sample all the trees in a part of the forest and they would just park themselves under the sweetest apples, the biggest, sweetest apples, because they could get, because they were looking for the flesh because it's sugary and it builds fat. They didn't really care for, you know, little crab apples with mostly seeds and very little tart flesh. That wasn't what. So the bears with generations selected the biggest, sweetest. Oh, apples. the same way humans do. The same way people do. And that's how you got a, a wild forest of apple trees that were amazingly good. And so huh. <laughs> what the researchers did and actually was the researchers from Cornell. They went down there and they knew about this story. And all they did was they collected bear scats in the fall. And they said in one bear scat, they got 250 seeds on average. And those tree, those seeds, when they put them in, I mean, they were super viable and scarified. You know, they had gone through the digestive tract and fertilized and inoculated. So they had all the mycelium to grow well. Anyway, they, they did really well. So right. Cornell has the best collection in North America of these Malaceaversi. It's, a, it, it's basically, it's his own apple. Um, that's amazing. And yeah, I'd like to get some of those seeds. <laughs> just to show you how bears are so attracted to 
ripe apples and they will come from far. But yeah, if, if you can, it's, I heard somebody say it's really hard to get this, this video. I met the, the person who did it, Catherine Pex. We, we were on a train uh, going back to Paris one year and the stories, because she was there for four years doing this film and the stories she could tell about, you know, about Dr. Jengalev and all that is stuff incredible. And they're working to try to preserve that forest. Right. Uh, because like the genetic resource there is is better than any collection in the world and yes. it's nature selected over yes. hundreds of years so now strangely enough now i almost feel worse because uh you know, think of all the years i've had apples and the bears showed up last year which inclines me to think last year was the first year they were good <laughs> Since the well, bear... certainly fragrant you let yes. them go long enough that they were fragrant because that's what attracts them it draws the right. smell well and they did look like you know last year was like the best looking everything looked great also that tree um it had grown straight it was one of those stupid five trees that you can't prune you know um you know you got like one branch a foot from the ground and that's your uh you know, I don't know, whatever, some, you know, uh, Macintosh, and then you got another one. And, and so the, the, the central leader of this tree, the one thing that's going to be there no matter what you do, the red delicious, the most useless apple in the world, in my opinion. So anyway, that whole tree uh, tipped over one year from, you know, wait, just like in your documentary, I planted it in a place where the water table is too high. Okay. Okay. So the soil is too soft. So it's real risk of trees tipping. I just did a video talking about that. It's just a problem. I got. That's where the trees have to be. So I have to deal with it. So I have to tether them and things like that. Anyway, um, so when the tree tipped over is the greatest gift in the world because I cut that uh, red delicious off, and now um, one of the other varieties, I think it's uh, Honeycrisp. I think that is now the one going up, right? So that's why the tree was so much. Instead of having all these red delicious, which aren't delicious. <laughs> those over there and I now I got these nice honey crisp everywhere right and of course a bear comes in and just eradicates the tree uh, <laughs> one thing I was going to ask you uh, the, the thing that didn't make your list is the blueberry yeah. and the raspberry and the blackberry why weren't those on your list is there any particular reason or you just don't happen to you know because when I did that we didn't have many blueberries Right. We just we our soil is at first seems not ideal, but actually it's it is quite ideal for blueberries. Uh, so we're we we're planting more. We're getting more this spring, and raspberries we grow. We used to grow a lot more. Uh, we just don't have as much now because the orchard's grown up. And you know you were talking before about a forest, and then you'll have all these shrubs kind of growing under the edge of the forest. Well, right. if you went on the sunny side on the edge of those shrubs would be a row of black uh, raspberries. I see. All raspberries would be in that stretch. So raspberries is, all, is always creeping away from the forest to stay in the sun. And right. if they can't move away from the sun, then they kind of just die out. So that's kind of what happened in our orchard. We used to harvest them, you know, baskets and baskets. And now we have plants, but they're not producing much because they're too much in the shade. So we started it. In our new block, we put in uh, a bunch of raspberries this last fall, so we'll get them eventually. Okay, that makes sense. And I was just going to mention one more thing for the viewers, uh, because people have smaller backyard gardens. 
Um, a thing I've found, although the location was wrong for me, um, in line with the rhubarb is another plant called uh, lovage, which is this perennial celery type thing. And once they're full size, they're like six feet high, <laughs> right? So they will cast, you know, if you plant that, the, the problem is I had mine two feet in front of my apple tree. So it was actually up and it was affecting the, what do you call it, the, ch the chimney? Right. right. Uh, it was growing into the tree and you could see all the apples near the lovage were were getting attacked by things because there was an airflow, there wasn't sunlight and so on and so forth. So I yeah, think that's why my kind of definition of uh, of shrub that works well is I try to limit it to about a, a meter 20. You know, four okay. feet is great. Four feet. Yeah. And the lovage is six feet. So it's yeah. too high. Yeah. Um, Just like I don't use uh, uh asparagus under i do have some but i don't plant anymore because we did a few we tested them and then i realized you know what these things grow to six feet high uh, the ferns in the you know and that's that's the height of some of our fruiting shrubs so i now place it if i put it in i put it where there is no plant or no tree and it'll take the whole space of a shrub or of a tree and that's right. okay if you give it its its spot but in terms of growing in layers where you want to grow something under the tree, then you want something lower. You want something, something low. even ground covers. Like you would probably be in a great spot to grow things like low bush blueberries and cranberries. Yes. Although cranberries might be wet, but you know what? When you said it was too wet for the fruit tree, it might be really appropriate for something like cranberries. Water is not a problem here. <laughs> no, not a problem. But I just... Uh, I've just been doing a video series where I'm, I'm building a, a pond in my garden, but it's uh, basically building a drainage ditch. And I thought, well, why don't I, why don't I put a pond, you know, just because it's a, a way to get water and it's nice and it'd be a fun thing to do. Um, fun, fun in quotes, because digging big holes in the ground is never fun. Uh, What's your natural <laughs> pH of the water there then? I have no idea. Yeah, I've never tested anything here. I really should really do that one of these years. I mean, um, water here tends to be acidic. We have acid rain and the soil is acidic. Everything's supposed to be acidic here. Um, you know, that said, any variety of potato that I plant that is not scab proof gets scab. And, you know, potatoes are supposed to, acidic soil is supposed to prevent scab. And all the soil here is supposed to be acidic. Yet, um, if I plant any kind of potato that's not completely, anything other than a, like a russet or a russet herb is a handful of potatoes that are scab proof. If I plant anything other than that, if it says scab resistant, it gets some scab. If it's scab, if it's, it's if it doesn't say anything about scab, the whole potato is a scab. Uh, you know, like. Uh, yeah. I planted one one year called Aramosa, which is a delicious white potato with the soft, almost nothing skin, really good tasting. Um, but if you left it in the ground any length of time, it would just, 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 and then because there was scab, all these things would go in it and ugh, it's disgusting, right? Um, anyway, totally off topic. So I, I suppose I should test my, I just, something about me i love just you know seeing what happens but uh, i'm inclined to think the soil is acidic and the water should be acidic because everything is supposed to be acidic here because on the eastern seaboard we have acid rain um your potatoes i would suspect the problem isn't the acidity 
because you probably have the acidity needed, I would suspect it's the moisture because potatoes do like well-drained. Like you look around, what, where are they growing? They're growing on the hillsides. They're growing, you know, in the sandy soils. They do need, if it's wet, you will have a lot more. You could even have blight showing up because right. it's just too wet. And most of the diseases I found, especially fungal disease, they're really an indicator, a great indicator disease of usually too wet. Too the wet. roots, the, you know, the base of the roots are too wet. One year, as an example, uh, I started the irrigation system. We had an earlier spring and I thought, hey, you know, we could start the water. So we started the water and then I thought, well, you know what? The water's going and we could irrigate. And I started irrigating about three weeks earlier than I usually do. Usually I start around the first week of May. I don't turn it on until then, even right. though we're in, in total sand, but it's like there's enough moisture still in the ground. Right. From but the that snow. Week, yeah. That year I started it about two or three weeks late, earlier. And boy, I've never seen as much black knot as we had that year. It was crazy in the plums. And I thought the only thing I did different this year was I started the irrigation earlier. And I've since been watching uh, people who have plum trees. And I, there's one place I saw they had a row of plum trees kind of going a little bit up a little hill, not like maybe two feet. And the plum trees at the top were fine. And the closer they got to the ditch, the ones that were like a, a foot and a half above the ditch spring water level yes. were covered in, in black knot. Uh. So the same cultivar, different water regimes and will respond totally different. And usually Sir Albert Howard talked about that in his book, you know, disease are, we need to look at insect and disease, not as a problem, but as an indicator. Yeah. And he was pointing out the most frequent for fungal disease is the drainage is wrong. It, you know, right. if there's water logging, it's a lack of oxygen because, you know, the, it's underwater. So there's no oxygen in, and the roots die out. They can't grow submerged especially those of fruit trees right. and so you will get symptoms come up and the most common is disease and then usually you'll get the insects on top of it because now that the tree is suffering a lot from disease you'll also get the insects right right that but makes yes, a lot of sense berries, raspberries absolutely i would add them to the list uh i actually love black raspberries there that's really a great one to add and if somebody wants to grow raspberries, I would highly recommend they look into fall bearing instead of summer bearing. Right. Because fall bearing at this time of year, you just go in and you cut everything down. Yes. You just mow. I go with the mower and I can mow the whole, you know, a patch of raspberries, just mow it as low as you can go. And then yes. they come up from the ground and because they're primal cane or they grow on the cane of this year, yeah. so they'll they'll be on the tip of this year's growth. Right. But the other thing is it's fall time. So we've done really well with, we could harvest twice a week in raspberries and you have beautiful, you don't lose raspberries to being, you know, when they they're overripe and they go mush Yes. because it's cooler. So they're kind of in the fridge because it's getting to be fall time and they last longer. And in the season we get raspberries usually from the first week of August till Halloween. That's the challenge. So for me, I had a fall bearing raspberry and they grew really well. I got excellent vegetative growth. Um, 
The problem with them, and I gave up on them, I went back to summer bearing, is that mine, no matter what I did, would start forming their fruit. Now, this is specific to our particular ecosystem here. We get frost in September almost without fail. They start, they start fruiting in September, not in August, because we don't have the sun and we don't have the heat in the summer, right? Um, so they start fruiting in September and they're not finished developing their fruit before we start getting frost. And the fruit here, and I'm not saying all Nova Scotia, I'm saying here where I am, where, where it's just very close to the coast in a particular part of the province, um, where like my tulips start three weeks later than other people's tulips. My daylilies in the front yard are just beginning to appear. Daylilies, right? Um, rhubarb isn't showing at all. My uh, garlic is that high, right? <laughs> so things are barely happening here. Anyway, so the problem- You sound with... like you're the same as my zone, that we're okay. in the same, same, <laughs> same growing. But the th part of the problem is during the summer, we have a, a, there's a lot of days where it's foggy until yeah. about one in the afternoon, right? So those fall bearing raspberries are just starting to form fruit when we're getting frost and the fruit doesn't form right. Um, it doesn't have a good taste. It's, you know, half of them don't even fully ripen. Um, okay. They just don't become anything. So I, I I'd know, be curious, I, which kind did, what cultivar did you have? Do you remember? I don't remember, you know, because yeah, a lot that. of times the garden centers sell heritage, which is the big one for further South. Right. Yes. And heritage, it will start producing for us usually around the middle of September. Yeah. And it's in big production at middle of October. Right. But same for us. That one kind of sucks because they're a magnificent looking. I mean, these things yeah. are huge, strong, right. lots of fruit. And you're just watching. But they all rarely this... they rarely ripen their crop. I would be curious <laughs> if you tried the, the the early ones, Autumn Bliss. Autumn Bliss. Yeah, it's Bliss and Polana. Those are the two really early. They start early August and mm. they'll have finished like 80 to 90% of their production happens before mid-September. Okay. Yeah. That's what that I need. One, <laughs> that one is, oh yeah, that's made the difference. And then we get into our, our later ones and you know, they'll still keep getting something even though, but then what happens is the ones that do best for later are the ones really kind of in the orchard. They're not on the edge. They're in the orchard and they get protection from the trees from those first uh... frosts. I see. And they, they pass it. And why do you prefer the, the, like the autumn, September bearing to the, uh, the fall bearing to the summer bearing? One, because we're really there more in the fall when it's there. harvest time. Right. And the other one is the summer ones. If you don't get them that day. You have to harvest every day. Right. Yeah. Tomorrow yeah. it's, it's over. They're, they're mush. gone mush. Yes. And yes. they're finicky about pruning. I mean, you really have to be brutal on raspberries. You know, you People leave way too many canes. I did a video on pruning uh, black raspberries, but uh, red raspberries, similar thing. You have to, I usually cut 70% of all the canes out. Per crown, you mean? Like you're taking, you're, you're choosing winners and losers. You're, choosing, sort of you're just choosing like a plant, you get three canes, that's plenty. Right. Well, but it's got 12. <laughs> yeah. And Nine of them are crap. Like, don't bother. <laughs> They're not going to give you your crop. Right. You'll, get so, a, you'll get 
it's what happens is it's imagine a, a plant is a root mass. Yes. Let's say it has a hundred percent energy, but you're dividing it into 10 stems. So each one could produce 10% of the crop could out of that, you have half of them, which are really the losers. I mean, they're just, they're not going to, they, they're half height and they're small. Those you can eliminate. All of a sudden you've concentrated that remaining hundred percent of energy into five. And now you select the two out of the five that are still looking the weakest. Maybe their angle isn't right. Maybe they're growing, you know, two horizontal. So just take those out. Now you're left with three out of 10, but those three will get a hundred percent of the root energy going to them. Right. And, and you'll get, let's say that crop, the, the root could give you five pounds of, or three pounds of raspberries in the season. Yes. Well, now each cane will give you one pound of raspberries. You're getting three pounds of awesome raspberries instead of three pounds right. of crap raspberries. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes yeah, a lot. Yeah. It makes so, a huge difference. So the advantage of your fall bears is you don't have to do any of that that mathematics. You just mow her down and yeah. it comes up later. And yes, that makes I, a lot of sometimes sense. Sometimes if, if I'm feeling a little ambitious, I will go through in, you know, usually you'll see it by June and you can take out the, you know, that five out of 10 that, they're, they'll never amount to anything so just take them out then it's like it just it, what happens is the more light you can allow lower on a fall bearing then it starts at the tip they'll produce and then if there's enough light let's say this is your cane so they'll produce up here first but now because it still has season now they'll produce down here and if there's enough light then they'll produce lower and they keep flowering lower and lower on the stem so that some of them, that's where you get the biggest crop before mid-September. But, you know, some of them will keep going till early October on these low, on the lower part of the cane. Right, right, right. That and makes so it's sense. like, that's just bonus. Yes, <laughs> I mean, yes. It's, it's bonus. And fall raspberries, if you leave one, let's say one really nice cane, you can get a summer crop next year. Right. You just yes. cut the cane down, leave it maybe half the length. And it will produce a summer crop at the expense of a part of your fall crop. That the, fall, the fall raspberry is the ever-bearing, right? right? That's the terminology, right? Whereas, I don't know why they call it ever-bearing. It's basically, you get a, an early and a late crop and the heavier crop comes late. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's why I was initially drawn to the variety. I'm like, I mean, I get two for one? That's what yeah. I want. <laughs> but what and well-drained though. Well, I would... Like if you're doing raised beds, I would add one more board, you know, just that added six inches yes. will get it that much out of the watery wet. And I would suspect, you know, you'd even, you'd probably pick up on the harvest of some of your things. If you're really wet, your soil, like if the, if where you're walking, your paths are pretty well wet, or, you know, if you stick your finger in, you right. feel it's, it's moist all the time, adding another board, you know, just go with a, like a six inch board or equivalent. Uh, that makes would sense make. too. And so that's my, where I suspect your potatoes, I would even add two, go a foot higher. Go even higher. Yeah, because then what happens is your potatoes will become uh, like facultative water gatherers. They'll grow in that top foot, but if they find it's dry, there will be roots that will go, oh, it's, it's moist, but they'll only go as far as they need to without being waterlogged. And, right. and you won't have disease, but, Potatoes are water, 
And if they have no lack of water, wow, you'll get a, you'll get a bumper crop. That makes a lot of sense. The raspberries were planted at grade. My garden's on a slope. They're at grade at the bottom of the slope. Oh yeah, no. The wettest place. <laughs> yeah, you want them on the highest part of your garden where it's the best drainage. All your fruit trees the same. Yeah. <laughs> your strategy is absolutely bang on, you know, to make a ditch in your garden and turn it into a pond. That's, that's absolutely a great strategy. Right. Because you get drainage, you get the pond, which attracts all kinds of creatures. And then it's easier because you got to do something with the soil you're actually excavating. So why take it far? Make your beds that much higher up. That's, that's what I've been doing. I've been building so up all my beds with the soil. That's absolutely the way to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Stephette, it, you know, I, I love talking to you because everything is connected to everything in the conversation, even though we have a theme that goes all over the place. because. That's just the nature of, even when I was out, I'm out trying to, you know, work on this uh, pond that I'm making and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. Oh, I, I want to bring this bed up, but there's this thing there. I don't want it. There's a perennial there. I want to move. I got to take those out. They got to do some other thing. And it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's because you're trying to make a garden that the whole thing makes sense within itself. Um, you're, you're not, I mean, I, I usually take, make the joke that I'm playing God. But it's the opposite. You're sort of, you're being passive, right? You're, you've, you've got problems you're trying to solve, but you're solving the problems based on what the information that's coming at you. Um, it's like, well, this, this doesn't want to be here. It clearly doesn't want to be here. This should be over there. Why did I put it here in the first place? And so, you know, you're, you're working through those problems, but it's a, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a contemplative endeavor. It's a thinking process, but it's, it's passive. You know, you're not saying I'm going to make things the way I want them. You're, you're, you're more, you're being receptive to the information and constantly change. For me, it's constant change and correction. Uh, you know, I, 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 I would love to have one year. I think the year I die, the year I die that summer, I'll point, you know, I got everything right this year. I'll be really scared if I have a summer like that. We're like, you know, everything's exactly where it needs to be. I think I've got this figured out. That'll be the end of Greg. <laughs> I mean, that's why you need a, a multitude of crops because <laughs> you'll never get the perfect year for everything. You'll get that's great true. years for some and not so great for others. Always One last having... point. Yep. You had mentioned uh, uh, the water. I would just get a bag of watercress, throw them into your, your ditch and your, your pond they'll be a great indicator if your pH is near seven. Because if okay. they actually root and, and grow well, then you know your, so, your water is pretty, uh, it's pretty alkaline. It's like neutral. That's you, mean a, like. you mean watercress a seed or watercress? The, uh... the, the vegetable, you know, the, you could get watercress in the grocery stores. Okay. And they root super easy. Just put a piece of cutting down and, and they'll put out little roots. Really? Yeah. Oh, That'd be a great thing to grow in that way because I'm going to have uh, minnows. Especially in there. if you put a little, if you put a little pump to circulate, they like a little bit of moving water, watercress. Okay. And uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, like my other pond has goldfish, and they just eat everything. But this pond, I'm putting a different thing in called rosy red minnows, which um, they should eat the mosquitoes larvae, but they should leave the goldfish eat. Like every year, I'll have these 
uh, frogs lay eggs in my goldfish pond. And every year, I like when my kids were little, I'm like, look, the goldfish. And I, I keep hoping we'll have this great experience where they see the, not the goldfish, the tadpole evolve. And you'll see that bag of eggs get bigger and bigger. And you'll even see that the eggs have a little twitchy life inside the egg. And you go up the next day and there's no eggs. <laughs> it's like, as soon as they start moving, the goldfish are like, hey, I think that's a meat, you know, and they just all disappear. In like one, I got 12 goldfish in a pond, maybe six feet by four feet wide by about four feet deep. And they just, they're just gangsters, those guys. <laughs> Nothing has a chance in that, but I don't feed them. They're just there. Oh, no. They're just wild. Oh man. Oh, wait, anyway, okay. should wrap things up. Stefan, <laughs> <laughs> it was great having you on the show. Uh, you know, we'll do it again. And uh, uh, everybody, hope you liked watching this. Until next time, get out there, get at it, have fun in your garden. Stefan, thank you so much for telling us about shrubs. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thanks. Bye. Hey, folks, want to help support everything I'm doing here? Check out my sponsors, Vessies Seeds and Safer's Gardening Products. For Vessies, go to their website, Vessies.com, and use my coupon code GAVS22, and you'll get free shipping as long as there's a pack of seeds in your order. And there's no oversized items in your order. Check out the description box of this video for details. Uh, for Safer's products, Woodstream products, you can buy all the things I use in my garden, Slug and Snail Killer, BTK, Endall. You can buy that from Vessies, or you can go to their websites uh, for a much wider range of products to solve just about any kind of problem that you can imagine uh, with high-quality natural ingredients like oils from seeds and flowers and stuff like that. Uh, for, if, you, if you're in Canada, go to woodstreambrands.ca. And as long as your order is over $69, you get free shipping. If you're in the United States of America, then go to saferbrand.com. And as long as your order is over $45 US, you'll get free shipping from them. So yeah, if you want to help support the channel and the podcast, and they sell something you need, buy from them, and that'll help support everything I'm doing here. Thanks a lot. <laughs>